Well, it's good to see you back this evening. If you've got your Bible, you might want to be opening that to Matthew 13. That will be our main text for tonight. Hope you've had a good and an enjoyable afternoon. Now, if you're here tonight and you're a dad and you weren't able to get one this morning, uh, there was a gift from the congregation to the dads and there are some flashlights, a few still out in the lobby, and so feel free to pick one of those up. If you did not get one this morning, we would love for you to have that. I also want to give you a bit of a, a heads up on next Sunday morning. It's always an encouragement to me when shepherds uh, say we would like for the for to study this or to preach about that. Well, you may remember several weeks ago on a Sunday night we talked about uh, some some congregational health sort of stuff, and we talked about uh, empty pews and and how uh, what can we do to make sure that pews don't empty out and all those kinds of things. Well. Shepherd said, hey, we really would love for that sermon to be preached on a Sunday morning. So guess what? Next Sunday morning, if you're not fully alert, you may have already heard it before. If you think to yourself, this is familiar, it's going to be because we've preached that one before. But I'm thankful uh, that the shepherds here want the entire congregation to hear that lesson. And so next Sunday morning, we'll do that. And then, Lord willing, Sunday night, we'll look at some material about why the seven most common reasons that people quit church. Again, all under this umbrella of congregational health. Now tonight's lesson, sometimes as preachers, uh, you worry, you think in terms of what should I talk about and is the timing good and then sometimes you plan something and you think, well really, the timing for this is lousy and that's kind of how I feel tonight. Congregations coming off of a big high, a big success with Vacation Bible School. And we're going to come back tonight and talk about something that's very, very challenging. And so just realize going in, I feel like my timing with this isn't the best. But also think about this. Uh, Satan will, will do anything that he can to catch us off guard to, to make sure that he's looking for a weakness. And so it always makes sense for us to have our guard up. And so with that, we will do this lesson tonight. Uh, Matthew 13, it's familiar to us. It is the parable of the sower. Uh, that's what we often call it. But when you look at the parable, there's very, very strong emphasis placed on the type of soil upon which the seed falls. And one of the natural questions becomes, okay, what kind of seed or what kind of you know, place am I for the seed to fall on? What is my heart like? Now, it's challenging, I think, to study things that are very, very familiar. You know, we've studied this one from childhood. We could bring the little children in and we could talk to them about, okay, what are the four types of ground where the soil fell? And they said, well, we sang about that this morning and we know those four. And we studied it from childhood. And something that becomes very familiar, we can kind of zone out on it at times. So why continue to study it? You know, if I studied this a year ago, what has changed since the last time I studied Matthew 13? Well, obviously, the truth of Scripture has not changed. Now, I might pick up something new that I have not maybe noticed before, but the truth of Scripture hasn't changed. But isn't it possible that maybe since the last time I studied this, my heart has somehow changed. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But wouldn't that be the most important reason to study the parable over and over again? Now, as we get into this, and we're going to talk more about 
uh, some work that Francis Chan did and some material that he published, but in his book, Crazy Love, he makes a statement, and I want us to think about that as we dive in tonight, but the statement that he makes is this. He says, do not assume you are good soil. And I think there's real value in, in, in thinking about that as we get into this. Now, we'll read the parable and then we'll notice the explanation and then we'll kind of get to where we want to go tonight. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell ground uh, on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So it's four types of soil uh, along the path. The rocky ground, the thorny soil, and the good soil, we know them. Our young children can name them. But the in the the mirror kind of question is, what kind of soil am I? Well, thankfully in this one, not every parable Jesus is so kind to us, but in this one, uh, He gives His inner circle some, some key information and He shares it with us. He explains this parable. And so we take you to the words of of explanation beginning in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. We've all got to be one of the four. We all find ourselves somewhere in this parable. But which? Well, this is the Sunday night crowd. This is the core of the church. This is uh, probably not roadside soil. Most of us are Christians, so the seed has been sown and it's taken root in us in some way. So we're probably not roadside soil. Few of us would be rocky soil. Now, a new Christian, if, if somebody's in the room tonight and they're a brand new Christian, there is the potential to be rocky soil. That's why New Testament focuses so strongly on this need for us to constantly be growing. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So we have the potential, maybe, if we're new Christians, to be rocky soil. 
And we all want to be a good soil. I mean, we try to see ourselves that way. It boils down to whether we're continuing to grow. It boils down to whether or not we're bearing fruit. Another metaphor from the, the parable. Jesus scares us a little bit in the New Testament when He talks about branches being removed for not bearing fruit, John 15. But for us today... No matter how long we've been Christians, no matter how long we've been fighting the battle in our day and in our time, isn't thorny soil probably our greatest challenge? I mean, in our culture, isn't it so easy to allow the Word of God to be choked out, smothered to the point that it can't successfully grow within us the way God wants it to, the the way we'd really like it to? We're free to be Christians. We don't confess Jesus in fear, yet we do have a lot of stuff. And we sure are busy. Our attention spans are often short. And so what I really want us to do tonight is think in terms of thorny soil and what we can do to maybe avoid that as our I read Crazy Love. That's one of Francis Chan's books. It's been out several years now. It's got a red cover. I guess the picture of it's up on the screen. You may have already read this. You may have already studied this book in a Bible class. But this was one when I first heard about the book and I first decided to read the book. I downloaded it on my Kindle and I started reading and I very quickly realized I've got to go get a real copy of this because I'm going to have to do some highlighting and I'm going to have to do some writing. And when I want to make notes, I need a real book in front of me. Maybe you're that way also. So I had to go get a real copy of the book. And what he does in this book... And of course, I'd challenge you to read it like anything that's not the Bible. It's written by a human, so you read it. And you hold it up against Scripture. But what Francis Chan does in the book is he looks around at Christians and he attempts to wake up his readers by asking if somehow we've missed it, by by somehow not offering up the radical, sold-out commitment to God, the crazy sort of love that he's actually looking for. The, The crazy love that he wants and that he deserves. And see, we've been trained to be offended by that question. Our reaction when somebody says, well, is it possible that you've missed it? We're offended. You know, missed it? How could we have missed it? I mean, we're doctrinally sound. We're trying to follow the pattern in the Bible. How in the world could we have missed it? We're following the New Testament pattern. And don't get me wrong, I believe we do have a pattern to follow. And I believe we're following, for the most part, we're following that pattern. That's what we're trying to do. Don't get me wrong. And I believe we try. But are we living it out the way we should? Could there be something that's actually missing? When you get to chapter 4 of Chan's book, the, the, the chapter is entitled Profile of the Lukewarm. And he sets up chapter 4 by referencing the parable of the sower that we've just noticed tonight. And his take on this parable is that by allowing our soil to be thorny, we become lukewarm. We often quote that warning from Jesus to the church at Laodicea, the one in in Revelation, the church that Jesus calls lukewarm, a church that had become self-dependent rather than Savior-dependent. And He promises to spew them out of His mouth. That's Revelation chapter 3. We don't like reading those kinds of things. We don't want to be known as lukewarm. We don't want that to be us. 
But after summarizing the parable, I want to read a quotation out of the book to you tonight. Chan says this. He says, My caution to you is this. Do not assume you are good soil. I think most American churchgoers are the soil that chokes the seed because of all the thorns. Thorns are anything that distracts us from God when we want God and a bunch of other stuff. That means we have thorns in our soil. A relationship with God simply cannot grow when money, sins, activities, favorite sports teams, addictions, or commitments are piled on top of it. He then goes on to say, most of us have too much in our lives. As David Getz writes, too much of the good life ends up being deforming us spiritually. A lot of things are good by themselves, but all of it together keeps us from living healthy, fruitful lives for God. And then he says, I'll say it again, do not assume you are good soil. I think Paul wanted us to think that way, where we don't just assume that we've got it all together. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 12 where he's writing, he says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's why no matter what kind of a high we may be on as a church, there's always value in remembering that we've got to keep our eyes open. And we've got to keep our guard up. And so in that spirit we study tonight. So I'm reading the chapter 4, this profile of the lukewarm, and I begin reading it as a preacher. And one of the things that preachers do, we read things, and then we think things like, well, that'll preach. But I'd read something and I would think, that'll preach, and then I would think, but wait a minute, that's me. He just described me. And in the end, as I read chapter 4, I was very challenged by Chan's list. And I realized that as soil, I'm nowhere near always being what I need to be, way too many thorns. And so what I share tonight, it's always a lesson and it's always a reminder for me. And I share this tonight in hope that that all of us will be challenged simply to be better soil, less thorny soil. We want to be good soil. We need to have the type of mindset that, that, that Jesus is always trying to change us for the better. Now... In the parable in Matthew 13, Jesus provides in Matthew 13 a twofold, and then in one of the cross-reference passages to this, Luke 8, a threefold explanation of what thorny soil is all about. And in delivering this, um, he, he talks about the cares of the world. This is verse 22 of Matthew 13. You know, how often do the cares and concerns of, of living life here, how often do those things rob us of the time and the energy that, that really could be better devoted to God? And so the cares of the world, we're challenged by that from time to time. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches, the idea that we may build a wall around our lives financially, a wall of self-reliance, a wall that we see as safe, and when we're doing that, riches become very deceitful to us. Because the relationship with Jesus is the only surety. And then when you get to Luke chapter 8, he talks about the pleasures of life in that passage. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in having fun all the time rather than remembering why we're really here. And so in Chan's profile of the lukewarm, he takes those three things 
And what he does, in, in, in the list that he provides, it's an excellent soil check. That's why I named the lesson this way. And, and he takes these things and he walks into the kitchen and he sits down at the table and he starts presenting them in ways that will, if you're not challenged by at least one, I mean, just about every other one challenges me. And so what I want to do is I want to share part of this list. There are 18 of them in his book, and I'm not sharing all 18. Uh, one buddy of mine, he read it, and he's like, I'm going to preach a lesson on, I'm going to do 18 weeks on this. And I'm thinking, I don't think anybody could stand 18 weeks on this because it's so convicting. And so I'm going to read the list, and I'll, I'll mention a passage or two along each one, but I'm going to kind of let his, his, his checklist kind of stand on its own tonight. And so number one, He says, lukewarm people attend church regularly. It's what's expected of them, what they believe good Christians do, so they go. And all he's driving at there is the idea that just because Philip has shown up in church, that doesn't mean that my heart is what it needs to be. Just because I've shown up in church, it doesn't mean that my my soil is the way that it needs to be. I could still, in theory, be lukewarm. Jesus in Matthew 15, he goes back and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, and he talks about the idea that, hey, these people, they honor me with their lips, but in one sense their hearts are far from me. I don't want that to be me. But just because I'm in church, it doesn't mean that my heart's where it needs to be. Number two, he says, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they've given a little extra and it's easy and safe to give, they do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? And I think of the widow's might. I think of Luke chapter... 21, where Jesus, he's got some of the inner circle there and they're watching people come by and offer and and make their gifts and the the widow comes by and, and she throws in all she has and Jesus says, this lady's given more than all of these who were giving out of their abundance. She has given all that she had. I was listening to a podcast this morning on my way up and one of the things that was being talked about is that that giving is down. And um, one of the things that was said was maybe we're not talking about why it's important as much as we used to. I don't know. But that's his second one. Number three, he says, Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. And I want to repeat that one because that is thought-provoking. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. He goes on to say they desire to fit in both at church and outside the church. They care more about what people think of their actions, like church attendance and giving, than what God thinks of their hearts and lives. You remember Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus kind of goes off on the scribes and the Pharisees, and as he's talking about them in that passage, one of the comments from him, he says they do all of their deeds to be seen by men. If they're reading from the law, you follow that because it is the law. But don't follow their example because they say and do not. They do all of their deeds to be... I also remember John chapter 12, along about verse 42, 43, 44, along in there. Jesus is emotional and he's upset because there are people who believe in him, but they will not confess him because they don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. They care more about what people in the synagogue think than being in a relationship with him. Number four, lukewarm people 
don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it, for they merely, they're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Sorry, I'm getting my, my words kind of tongue-tied. We talked a few weeks ago about David. And we asked that question, you know, how are we doing at actually hating sin? It's hard. If it were easy to hate all kinds of sin, Satan would have a really, really hard time tempting us. The last time I checked, most of us, we, we, I'm still tempted on a day-to-day basis, and you probably are too. And so, how are we doing at genuinely hating sin? How am I doing at hating the sin, whatever it may be, that tempts me most. I remember Romans chapter 6, those first two verses where Paul poses this question, shall we continue in sin so that grace can increase? And then he says, may it never be. I don't want to use grace as a license. I I don't want to continue in sin. He, He says, how can people who have died to sin continue to live in it? You know, he's making this logical argument. Number five. Lukewarm people are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of His followers. And what did Jesus really expect? I think of James chapter 1, verse 22, the idea of being doers and not hearers only. Number six... Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. They don't, do not want to be rejected, nor do they want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Remember Luke chapter 6. The twelve have just been appointed by Jesus. And there's a lot of other folks there, and they start these discussions, these conversations, and Jesus begins to talk about how blessed are you when people reject you. There there ought to be some joy about you when people reject you because of who you are. We've got people in the room, I'm sure, who've been very, very successful in sales of some sort. Sales people have to learn to love rejection. Salespeople have to learn the idea that, man, one rejection means I'm that I'm net one step closer to the next yes. I think of Matthew 10 where Jesus says, you know, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, the question is, will we confess or will we deny? Number seven, lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness... By comparing themselves to the secular world, they feel satisfied that while they aren't as bad or aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they're nowhere near as horrible as the guy down the street. What standard do I hold my life up against? Remember Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you haven't looked at that in a while, one of the things you notice from the Pharisee and the tax collector, it is set up where Luke states that this is in response to some who viewed themselves as righteous, thought they were good soil, but viewed others with contempt. And so this whole thing from Jesus is because he's got some people on his hands there who are thinking they're one thing, and they're looking down on folks, and he says, there was a Pharisee, and there was a tax collector... And he talks about how they prayed. We've got to hold our lives up against the life of Christ. 
Number eight, lukewarm people say that they love Jesus and He is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give Him a section of their time, their money, and their thoughts, but He isn't allowed to control their lives. There were some radical life changes in the Gospels. Luke chapter 5, Jesus teaches from that boat. And then He calls those guys in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. Luke chapter 9, He's doing that teaching and He starts saying, follow me. And He, he gives all these people that start to make excuses. And he, and he talks about no one having put His hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do we truly allow Him to control our lives? Number nine, Lukewarm people love God, but they do not love Him with all their heart, soul, and strength. Now, we've talked about that. The word all is a lifelong process. They would be quick to assure you that they try to love God that much, but that sort of total devotion isn't really possible for the average person. It's only for preachers, missionaries, and radicals. Again, we realize we're all a work in process. But the goal needs to be for me to love Him with all my heart, my mind, and my soul. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Not too many more. I know these are heavy. Number 10. Lukewarm people love others, but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Their love of others is typically focused on those who love them in return, like family, friends, and other people they know and connect with. There is little left over for those who love them back, much less those who intentionally slight them, whose kids are better athletes than theirs, or with whom conversations are awkward or uncomfortable. Their love is highly conditional and very selective and generally comes with strings attached. I think of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Long about verse 43, and Jesus starts to talk there about the tax collectors. And He starts to talk about how if you're going to follow Me, you're going to love even your enemies. Because He says, even the tax collectors, even the most hated, even those guys love those who love them back. How are we doing at loving others? Number 11, Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they will go or how much time, money, and energy they're willing to give. Luke chapter 18, rich young ruler, and he comes and he starts asking questions of Jesus, and they talk about commandments, and Jesus, one thing you still lack, sell what you have, give it away, and the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful. Number 12, lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, and next month's vacation. That's hard. Because we live busy lives. Do we stay focused on why we're going to work? And do we stay focused on why we're working that list? And do we stay focused on the big picture, the idea that what we're doing here, it's but a brief time, it's a sojourn, it's not about the end. I think of Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes that statement, but whatever gain I had, whatever I counted as gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. My, my life now, it's not about what's going on here. I'm busy here and I've got things going on here, but in the end it's really all about what's next. Number 13, 
Lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. They're quick to point out Jesus never said money is the root of all evil, only that the love of money is. And the only thing I think of there, or not the only thing, but one of the things, in Matthew chapter 25, that judgment scene, Jesus pictures that and He talks about acts of meeting needs. Were we active in taking care of people? Were we active in meeting their needs? Number 14, lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. Jesus says in Matthew 13 where we've already been tonight, He shares two parables. He talks about a parable where I figures out that there's a treasure buried in the field. And when He figures out that there's a treasure buried in this field, and this is verses 34 through 46, when He figures out that that treasure's buried there in that field, He says that guy goes and he sells everything to make sure that he can buy that field. Nothing's going to stand in the way of him and that treasure. And in the same principle, the, the pearl. The pearl of great price. The pearl that's highly valuable. The, the guy finds that pearl and he goes and he sells everything to make sure that he doesn't miss out on what's most important. Is there anything that's too much that is too much of a requirement to keep me from chasing what God offers and to making sure that I lay hold of it. 16, and this is the last one that we'll do tonight. He says, Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. The truth is their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly, suddenly stopped believing in God. I think of Luke chapter 12 and the man who'd been very blessed and the crops came in and things were really going well and he said, I've got all this in front of me and what am I going to do? And he decides instead of giving it away, instead of helping other people, he decides I'll tear down the small barns, I'll build this, the big barns and then I'm going to kick back, I'm going to take it very easy. And that very night, his life is required of him and Jesus simply asks the question there, whose stuff is that going to be when he dies? You don't have to agree with all these, but I hope in some way maybe at least one of them challenges your thinking a little bit like it did mine. So many of these challenge me. And I hope what that this will do for all of us, I hope it doesn't depress us, I hope it doesn't bring us down, but I do hope that it will spur us on to further study. And I hope that it will spur us on to a more sold-out commitment, the idea that if we're going to be about the business of, of following Jesus and surrendering to Him, that we're going to do it to the very best of our ability to do everything we can to avoid being lukewarm. Also tonight, obviously... Sometimes the easy thing is to want to examine other folks and not self-examine. And hopefully a list like this from Chan's book will help us be better at self-examining. Because the question of the hour is simply, what kind of soil are you? And what kind of soil am I? Chan asks, 
four what I would call soul-searching questions as he closes out the chapter. And he makes the statement, do not assume your good soil. And then he asks these questions, and I want to share them with you as we finish up. He says, as your relationship with God actually changed the way you live? And I, I would think for most of us we could answer that in the affirmative. It has changed the way we live. That's a good thing. He says, do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? His third question, or are you choking it out slowly by spending too much time, energy, money, and thought on the things of this world? Can I do better in that area? Then he says or asks, are you satisfied with being godly enough to get yourself to heaven or to look good in comparison to others? Do the statements of Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11, it's that paragraph where Paul talks about what he could have claimed and what he could have been and what he could have held on to, but now I've, I've put all that aside because of the value of the kingdom. How do I respond to a lesson like this? Well, one of our responses to a, a list and a challenge like this in private prayer, one response I think would be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to our God for His grace, for His patience, the mercy that He shows us, the love that He shows us because He looks at me and He realizes in a lot of ways I'm still a mess, but He still loves me anyway and He still wants me to be in heaven. One response is a prayer of thanksgiving to my God. A second response might be a recommitment to cleaning up the soil trying to eliminate some of those thorns, trying to do a better job of having soil that is better conducive to bearing fruit. My response may be one of a public nature where I say, what I really need is my, my church family to be praying for me. A fourth response tonight might be opening the door to Jesus for the very first time. Because as I said in, in the beginning, Matthew chapter 13, that parable... Every one of us in the room, we're in there. All of us are soil. And the question is, what kind of soil are we? If you've not obeyed the gospel yet, if you've not opened your heart to Jesus yet, if you've not surrendered to Him by being baptized into Christ, why not do that tonight? I'll leave you with one last quotation from the book. He shared this. He said, It is not scientific doubt not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism, that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. Does that sound like that could have been written in this decade? Would it surprise you to know that Frederick Huntington wrote that in Forum magazine all the way back in 1890? I guess things change, but maybe in some ways they sort of stay the same. May God challenge all of us to want to be good soil. Tonight, if you have a need of any kind as Bradley leads us, let that be known while we stand and while we sing. So